How do you feel when you see blood? Some people feel faint, and others are not bothered by it. But as we see throughout the Bible, this idea of blood and the reality of it is important. Sacrifice of blood is the only way to deal with sin. The life is in the blood, as it said in Genesis. We walk sort of this strange path concerning blood. We sing about it readily in our songs, but sometimes I think that's because we don't think about deeply about what it is that we're actually saying, right? Because if we did, then perhaps we might have the same response that someone walking into one of our gatherings would have if we were singing a song and it says, you must be washed in the blood of the Lamb. And, and that would sound strange if you had no connection to church, if you hadn't perhaps grown up or had long familiarity with those sorts of songs, right? And yet, this idea of blood and what it accomplishes and its meaning and its, and its importance is seen all throughout Scripture and particularly here in the making of God's covenant with Israel. And obviously we'll see from the New Testament how the shedding of Christ's blood is essential to God's covenant with us as His people as well. And so from this passage, I think we will see that you and I need to be cleansed by the blood to obey and to draw near. Now there's a tension here because we don't see the word cleansed anywhere in this passage. And so perhaps we could use another, another word like the idea of united, united by his blood. I think the parallel there would be what we see in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 where it says, through the blood of Christ, you who are formerly afar off have been brought near. And there's a close parallel between that passage and what we see here. But to the commentators and others who would look at this passage and say, well, there's no specific phrase of cleansing, so this is not about cleansing, I think we have to recognize several realities. The first is that God is separate from sinners. We know this. We acknowledge this. Go back to Exodus chapter 19 for a moment. Because, as I said, when we first started looking at Exodus 19, this is kind of a unit, these five chapters, right? Exodus 19 through 24. We start with Exodus 19, and there's all this preparation and consecration and getting ready to come before God. And then there's the giving of the ten words and the explanation of them in Exodus 20 through 23. And now in Exodus 24 is the, the formalizing of the covenant. But in Exodus 19, remember these phrases in verse 12, "...set bounds for the people." Beware you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. And then chapter 19, verses 21 and 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, Go down, warn the people, so they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, or else the Lord will break out against them. And so there's this idea that God is holy, and that God is separate from sinners, and there's these boundaries, there's this division that has to be made. That continues here in this chapter. Uh, verse, chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, that's Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, 70 elders of Israel, and you shall wor worship at a distance. Moses shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. So, building on what has already been said, the people are here at the foot of the mountain, Moses has been going up and down and talking with God. 
And now he's going to bring this other group of people partway up with him, right? Aaron and Aaron's sons, and then the 70 elders of Israel. But they're not going to go as close as Moses, but they're going to be allowed to approach God. Before they do that, however, verse, we see what happens in verses 3 through 8. But so that we don't think that this idea of God being separate from sin is just an Old Testament idea, listen to what 1 Timothy 6 says. He alone is immortal and dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. That's going to become important in a moment because people see here a contradiction. We'll talk about that shortly. God is separate from sin. So now there's this gap, right? God wants fellowship with his people, but they're sinners and he's holy. And so there has to be someone or something or actually both to go between God and his people. The someone was Moses acting as, an, as a mediator. We talked in previous weeks about how Jesus is the perfect mediator, but Moses was the mediator, the one who went between God and the people. But there needs to be not just a consecration and a care in coming before God, as we saw from Exodus 19, but there also needed to be here covenant and sacrifice, cleansing and uniting that's taking place through the blood. Covenant, Exodus 24, 3 and 4, when it says all the words of the Lord several times in these verses, and then in verse 7, the book of the covenant, that is referring to what has just taken place previously, these previous chapters. So the words, the, the Israelites would refer to the Ten Commandments as the Ten Words. When he says words, we're talking the first half of chapter 20. The ordinances is the explanation of those words. The, the, uh, some translations may have judgments. The idea of not just the words of God, but all of the promises and penalties and all of those things associated with them. So, there's this book of the covenant, which is Exodus 20 through 23. Moses writes it all down, and now he's holding this book of the covenant, more properly a scroll of some kind, and he has this, and then there's going to be an altar in just a moment. We see in Exodus 24, verse 3, not just what it was they were agreeing to, but their commitment. Verse 3, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Covenant involves obligations and promises and things that are made between the people. And then there's the actual formalizing of the covenant in verse 8. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now what was God's part of the covenant, right? Because we see the Israelites' part of the covenant here. What was God's part of the covenant? Well, going back just for a moment to Exodus 19, it was this. Verses 5 and 6, If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was God's side of the agreement. The Israelites' side of the agreement is, yes, we will obey. Right? So very simply, you'll be my people. Yes, we will obey. What was the thing that made the covenant formal that finalized the agreement between God and the people. It was the sacrifice which finished or completed in this sprinkling of blood. So look at the verses 4 through 6 here. What was the sacrifice? Well, Moses builds an altar at the foot of the mountain, 
and he builds 12 pillars for the 12 tribes to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he sends the young men, uh, many would see this as being the firstborn of the Israelites, who are in large numbers offering burnt offerings and young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. So there's these sacrifices. And then in these sacrifices, there is shedding of blood. And that blood is gathered. And part of the blood is put on the altar. He says in verse 6, the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And then the first half he put into basins. So picture the scene. There's an altar. There's 12 pillars of stone. The blood from all of these sacrifices sprinkled on the altar, poured out on the altar, and then sprinkled on the pillar and potentially upon the Israelites as a whole, but at the very least sprinkled upon these 12 pillars to represent the sprinkling of the blood on the 12 tribes of Israel. What is happening here? So as I was saying a moment ago, there are those who say there's no element of cleansing. All that's happening is Thinking back to Genesis, remember that account, kind of strange to our ears, where God takes the, uh, the animals that Abraham is cut in two and the flaming torch passes between them. All that's happening here is they're cutting a covenant and it's a formalized agreement and that's all that's taking place. And in any of these ancient Near Eastern covenants, there would have been this, this uh, sacrificing of animals and this uh, use of blood to sort of seal the deal, if you would. But I think that if we say there's no element of cleansing, no element of purification, we certainly ignore what the New Testament says about it. And even in this very context, notice what happens. The elders and the people are not allowed to come near God. Then this ritual takes place. Then look at verse 9. Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. They saw the God of Israel. And then verse 11, they ate and drank. Why was it that they couldn't come near God and then they're able to see at least a glimpse of God's glory and have this fellowship meal with God after the fact? I think it's because the blood that is poured out and sprinkled unites the two parties and the way in which it unites the two parties confirms God's promises to His people, confirms the people's promises to God, and at least symbolically deals with their sin. Now, is that a permanent thing? No. I mean, we're going to see the Israelites seemingly abandon the covenant when we come to Exodus chapter 32, right? So it's not as though the fact that they made this promise meant that they were forever going to keep it, even though they should have. What's the New Testament parallel for us? Jesus in himself unites covenant, sacrifice, and blood in himself. Matthew 26, 28, Jesus is doing the, the Last Supper, the Lord's table with his disciples, and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. 1 Peter 1, 2 says that, Peter talks about this idea of, of God's elect being set apart to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Hebrews 10, 11 to 14 talks about there being one sacrifice for all time in Jesus and what he did on the cross. And then Hebrews 12, 22 and 24 says, You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. 
So apart from the cleansing that is offered through the blood, there is no forgiveness of sins and no ability to truly and obediently serve God or to approach Him. But in Christ, Hebrews 10.10 says this, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And as I mentioned before, Ephesians 2.13, You who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so in this scene, we have wrapped up all of these ideas, a gap between men and God, a need to bridge that gap, promises made from God to His people and from His people to Him, and a formalizing of this covenant that God is going to keep His promises, the people are going to keep their promises. Why is this so important? Because so many times there are people who get this backwards. They think that they can obey God without having any relationship with God. They think that they can obey God and come before God without the way having been open for them to do so. And so, when we say, I will work my way to God, we can only really say that if we have never read a passage like this, if we don't get a passage like this. Because this passage makes it clear that there is a gap between man and God that only something that God orchestrates and brings about can close. That there is a gap between man and God and a, a separation that is brought about by sin that something has to take place for that to be dealt with if we're going to come before God and truly worship and serve Him. And yes, Hebrews would make it clear that these were ongoing rituals because they couldn't fully and finally deal with sin they pointed to Christ and His one-time sacrifice, but that didn't mean that they were pointless or that they had no significance. It shows that God's people are here and God is here and there's a division in between them and something has to happen. And if we say, well, let's ignore all that and just say, well, I'm going to serve God and He'll be happy with me because I'm trying to live a good life and I'm doing religious works and all those sorts of things. It ignores these realities. You can't bridge that gap by your own invention. You can't close that gap by trying to be a good person because God said, this is the way to approach me. And there had to be a sacrifice in order for that to take place. And so that's why we get it backwards if we say, well, I'm just going to work my way to God. That's not how it works. If you, however, have been cleansed by the blood, you must obey and draw near with bold reverence. You must obey. What, what did God say He wanted them to be? He said He wanted them to be a kingdom of priests. He wanted them to serve Him, right? But you can't serve God until you are cleansed, but once you are cleansed, you must serve. Why is that important? Because just as there's the error that says, well, I'm going to work my way to God, there's the error that says, I've been cleansed, I'm going to do my own thing, right? Both of them are wrong. You can't work your way to God, you can't receive God and then do whatever you want. God cleanses you and sets you apart and sanctifies you so that you will serve Him. What did the people say in verse 7? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. As I said a few moments ago, commitment is not a guarantee of obedience. Well, how do we know that? Because in chapter 32, we're going to see them break that promise to God, right? And they have to deal with and work through all those sorts of things. But that obedience is owed to God. That was the nature of the agreement that God made with them. And this is not merely an Old Testament concept. 1 Peter 1.22 says this, 
Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. And so in that context of 1 Peter, where he said, you've been set apart to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, he follows that up a little bit later in the chapter with basically a restatement of love your neighbor as yourself. What did the Ten Commandments require? Love God with all of who you are and love your neighbor as yourself. So there's this commitment, there's this ritual with the blood, there's this covenant, and then there's the expectation of obedience. And again, if we sort of rip out the love your neighbors yourself without any reference to a relationship with God, it both doesn't work and it doesn't please God. So, for example, there has been a lot of talk in our society today that basically says, well, you Christians talk about loving your neighbor, so you need to do this or that. And the this or that has taken many different forms. The most recent is, if you love your neighbor, you need to comply with all of these different expectations in terms of uh, public health initiatives and all those sorts of things. And my point of bringing that up is not to argue when and where we should or should not wear a mask, stay however many feet apart, and all those sorts of things, right? There are conscience issues tied in with that, and there is, yes, concern for one another. There is the issue of obedience to government authority where it does not transgress or trespass on God's authority. But the people that take a phrase like love your neighbor as yourself and say, well, that merely has to do with do you conform to expectations of people around you, have missed the point, right? This is not a passage that will be ripped out of its context and made to serve a particular political or societal agenda. God doesn't want external conformity so we can strut around and say, I'm more holy because I do blank, or I'm better than you because I don't do that thing, God wants us to actually and truly love our neighbor as ourself, fervently love one another from the heart, right? And yes, that may have spillover effect in the things that we do. It probably means don't go to Home Depot and make a scene because you don't want to wear a mask. It probably means have consideration for the people around you, but that is not the primary or the only point of what's being said when God says love your neighbor as yourself. So the question I would ask you in light of 1 Peter 1 is, do you love your fellow believers fervently? Not just, do you get along with them? Are you happy to see them once a week? But do you love them fervently? What does that look like? We were talking about some of these things last night in Brothers at Arms. It probably means that we have more contact points with one another than just once a week at the church service, right? If you love your wife, and you say, all right, I talked to you a week ago, we're good. How y'all think that's going? Probably not great. I mean, the same point could be made about our relationship with God if we only talk or interact with Him once a week, but the point I'm making right here now is if we fervently love one another from the heart, there's got to be more of a connection than just we see one another on Sunday morning, and that's it. Right? Hebrews 12, 
12 through 17, expands on this idea. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes up short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears." In so many of our church contexts, people wander away from God and the only way we ever find out about it is when they get kicked out of the church. It ought not to be that way. We ought to be aware enough of what's going on in each other's lives that it does not get to that point aside from the great temptation of Satan and perhaps God's sovereign purpose in bringing that person back to repentance, to the extent that it lies within us, we ought not just let people idly wander away because we haven't cared enough to know what's going on in their lives. So what does that practically look like? It looks like more points of contact. It looks like specific interactions about important things. So not just have I talked to this person from church three times this week, but have you prayed with that person? Have you struggled with that person through temptation? Have you rejoiced with that person with what God is doing in their lives? Have you worked with that person to try to reach someone else for Christ It's easy for us to think that we have fulfilled our responsibility as Christians if we show up to a service and we're pleasant to people before and after, and then we go about our week, and then we see each other again the next Sunday. And I say these things not because I'm trying to... I'm not trying to say that, that the church here is completely broken and that we're all terrible people... I mean, we ought not measure ourselves by other churches, but there are other churches where there's a whole lot less spirit of connection and closeness and care for one another than I see in our church here. But the question is not, are we doing better than that church over there, right? The question is, are we living up to all of what God calls us to be and do in terms of our relationships with one another? More connection points serious conversations interwoven with the events of life. So, sometimes we don't have the conversations because it feels really awkward to say, hey, I read my Bible today. Did you read your Bible today? Because then that sounds very accusatory and then we tend not to want to have that kind of conversation. What, what ought to happen is that we get to a point where the conversation flows naturally back and forth between, here's a struggle I have going on with work. Okay, let's pray about it. Here's something that God encouraged me with about this passage that I was reading this week. That will be a great help when I encounter this circumstance during the week. We ought to get to a point where there's that natural moving back and forth because there's not a sharp line between religious things and everyday life. Because if our Christianity doesn't affect our everyday life, then it's not really accomplishing what it's supposed to accomplish, right? God's not just God on Sunday and the rest of the week we're on our own. 
God is working in us throughout the week, and so prayer and scripture reading and meditation on God's Word and conversation about these things ought to be interwoven with all the events of life. Why is this so important? Why do we need to come alongside one another and sustain one another? For one, look at the example of the Israelites. Shortly after they make these great promises to God, they fall away from it. And if we're just like, yeah, that was the Israelites, I wouldn't do that, we're foolish, right? Hebrews 12.25 says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those who did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. So if there is this cleansing, if there is this uniting, if there are these promises between God and man, if there is this sense of fellowship, that's supposed to lead to obedience. But it's also supposed to lead to drawing near to God. Exodus 24, verses 9 through 11. I read this a moment ago. This idea that Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders go up. They see the God of Israel. Under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God and they ate and drank. What was it that they saw? It's almost as though God made the floor of heaven opaque for a moment. And they looked up and they catch a glimpse of God's glory. We see a parallel to this in Revelation chapter 4 where it says in John's vision... There was a throne in heaven and one sitting on the throne. He was sitting, was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. There was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones. On them I saw 24 elders clothed in white garments, golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front of and behind. Then the description of the creatures, their words, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And then verse 10, When they give Him glory, they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and because of Your will they existed and were created. Uh, there are people who will say the elders are angels. There are people who say the elders are members, representatives of redeemed humanity. Regardless of that, I think John and I think the elders with Moses caught a glimpse of the same thing. The glory of God's presence, the beauty, and the uh, awesome power demonstrated as he's there on his throne in heaven. So how do we reconcile that then with 1 Timothy 6 that says no man can see God and live? Well, if we think about other places in Scripture where people have encounters with God, I think the answer would be this. They did not see God in the full immensity of His glory because that would have consumed them. But they did catch a glimpse of God and His power and His greatness, and it was sufficient for them to recognize this is God, and He is awesome and full of power, and we who were 
just before here told, don't come near the mountain or you will die, now have the opportunity to catch a glimpse of God and more than that, to have this meal of fellowship with Him. But that's cut short, right? They don't get to go all the way up the mountain with Moses. They have to go back down. But they do get to see this, which would have been a huge and awesome thing considering where we were at the beginning of Exodus 19. They had to go back down the mountain, but what is true for us as believers? Hebrews 10, 19-25. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what did those elders experience? They experienced a truncated, a cut-short version of what Hebrews 10 says we get to experience more fully and what Revelation says we will experience fully forever and finally in God's presence. And so there's this unfolding of God's fellowship with His people, this opportunity for people to be near and with God, which has been God's design from the beginning. Adam and Eve, fellowship in the garden, broken by sin. And these progressive stages where it unfolds and we're allowed to draw back closer to God what does that look like for us today? Where do we approach God? We don't go to Mount Sinai. We don't go to some place in Jerusalem. We don't go to a particular holy site. This church building, we ought to come before God in reverence as we gather for worship, but the building itself is not a holy place. Other than to the extent that God is present in and among us. We draw near to God in the assembly with other believers. So, there are people who have said that with regard to restrictions that are being put on churches in, fortunately, other states at this time, that, and I even had this conversation with other people at the beginning of all these things back in March, well, you can pray to God anywhere, right? So why do you need to gather at church? Why do we need to gather? We need to gather because we are God's people and we gather in fellowship with Him even as the Israelites gathered on Mount Sinai and caught a glimpse of God in His glory and made promises to God and received promises from God and that was made possible through the blood that was sacrificed and offered and sprinkled on them symbolically. They experienced a picture of it we experience nearer to the reality of it here and now. And so if we say, it's no big deal if we gather or not, then we fail to see the greatness of what God is doing in and among His people. And so there are people who have said, you know what? 
Don't worry about whether or not you get to gather as a church during the coronavirus. Worry about what happens when other political agendas are being pushed because those are the things that we really need to fight about. And I would say that's wrong. If we don't think that it's important to assemble as God's people and have fellowship with Him, anticipating that future fellowship in heaven, we have misplaced priorities because it is far more important that we assemble as God's people because that assembly is the very meaning of the church, right? It's a, it's a fellowship. It's an assembly. It's a gathering of God's people. At its very core, that's what it is. It's not... I prayed a prayer and now I watch a preacher on TV or listen to a guy on the radio and I call myself a Christian but I never get together with other Christians. That's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is tied to assembling together as God's people. And so I think it was wise for us as a church to say we're not going to meet for six weeks or whatever while we see what's going on with a public health crisis and let it unfold because I think we did have a responsibility to be wise and consider all the things that were going on. But for the fellow churches who are in places like California who are being told you cannot sing to God and you cannot gather for an indefinite period of time, I think they are right in saying we are going to gather, we must obey God rather than men. Now, the caveat is, do you have to have a thousand people in one place to be the church? I mean, no. The early church, other than when they gathered everyone in the synagogue or in the temple early on, was not always in one place. You know, the 3,000 and then the extra ones that were added on early in the book of Acts. It wasn't like all of them all the time were gathered in this massive crowd. There's no mandate that it has to be inside the church building, right? It could be out in a field somewhere. But God's people need to assemble. And if we say that other things are more important, other anticipated crises down the road that could cost us tax-exempt status or cost us our church building or all those, that those things are more important than the act of assembling, we don't see the thread of fellowship with God and gathering His presence that runs throughout the Scripture. So what then is the group size that needs to gather for it to be legitimately considered the church? It just has to be more than one family, Right? And it ought to be as many of us as reasonably possible. Right? So, if it's just a family, that's not the church. And I say that because there are people who've had this idea of family church. And while I think that families should read the Bible and pray together and all those sorts of things, that in and of itself is not the church. Does it have to be every single person every single time? No. I mean, sometimes people are sick. Sometimes people can't come for reasons of weather uh, or whatever else. So I'm not trying to guilt people who can't come on a particular Sunday and say, well, you're not part of the church because you weren't here this week. But I also don't want to take it to the stream and say, well, if you never get together, that's all fine because, you know, it's not all that important, right? We need to assemble why. Our worship looks forward to John's vision of worship in heaven and looks back to the elders' vision of an and act of worship of God that they catch this glimpse of God and this moment of fellowship on the mountain with Moses. We need to worship when we're gathered and we need to come to God regularly through Jesus in prayer even when we are apart. And both of these things anticipate perfect worship in God's presence for all eternity. As we saw in the first part, you must be cleansed by the blood. As the old song asks, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Right? That sounds strange to our modern ears. 
but it is perhaps the most important question we will ask people. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Because apart from the blood of Jesus, you can't come before God. As we saw in the second part, having been washed in the blood, you must obey and approach God. So do you obey Him? And I highlighted a few examples of what obedience looks like, but there are so many more examples. Do you approach Him? We have a great privilege. Jesus is our mediator, not Moses. We don't have to wait down at the foot of the mountain, but as it says in Hebrews 12, 18-29, and we'll close with this, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and a blazing fire, and a darkness, and a gloom, and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it then that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less Will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven? And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. May God help us to offer to Him our acceptable service both now and forever. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see the sober privilege and amazing grace that you have shown to us in permitting us to approach you boldly through Jesus Christ. Help us to see our gathering before you to worship as a privilege, not a burden. Help us to see it as central to our lives, not just something we do once a week because we ought to. Help us to serve you as we ought, which is only possible to the extent that you have made us your people and we have committed to follow after you and we have been cleansed by the blood and we look forward to serving you both now and in the age to come. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.